0: You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19.
1: Andrew and I are privileged today to be joined by Congresswoman Barbara Lee, She has served in Congress since 1998, serves the 13th District of California, which includes Oakland, Alameda. She serves on the Budget Committee and on the Appropriations Committee, including the State and Foreign Ops Subcommittee and the Labor, Health and Human Services Subcommittees. Both of those subcommittees terribly important on domestic and global health. She's the founder of the Congressional HIV AIDS Caucus, which is bicameral and bipartisan. So welcome, Barbara. And thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you. Really happy to be with you, Stephen. I hope all is well. And this is an exciting conversation to have. So I really thank you for inviting me to be with you.
1: That's great. So first, let's start. You propose in new legislation the creation of the Commission on Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation. Can you just take a few minutes and describe for us the goals, the objectives, the populations that this would encompass, and how it would go about doing its work?
2: Sure. Let me uh, just a bit of history, uh, Stephen. You know, over 40 countries have enacted some form of this commission that I have introduced. Some are called Truth and Reconciliation Commissions, such as in Rwanda after the horrific genocide, in South Africa, in, you know, again, 40 countries all around the world. These commissions are important because one is after brutal acts of genocide and human rights and dehumanizing incidences in our history, in order to move a country forward after such tragic events, you have to have a truth-telling moment where the entire country understands the historical context of what affected peoples are dealing with. In this country, for example, It's systemic racism, the murders of black and brown uh, men and women, disproportionate. The disproportionate rates of COVID-19, the huge wage gap, the unequal efforts in terms of uh, just housing, uh, and the efforts by mortgage lenders to um, issue the subprime rates primarily to African-Americans in terms of the subprime crisis. So you have huge disparities in this country that are embedded with systemic racism at their core. No one, and I'm, I'm really surprised because during COVID, the first month of COVID-19, a lot of my very progressive white friends called me and could not figure out why are we seeing so many African-Americans getting infected and dying. They never made the connection between the death and the transmission of the virus, systemic racism, and 401 years ago. They couldn't make that leap. And that's because there's no historical context of slavery and the Middle Passage and enslaved people and what happened during slavery and after slavery. You know, the Jim Crow laws, the Black Codes, segregation, lynching, all of these laws and policies were put out into place after 250-some years of being enslaved. So these chains haven't all been broken. Most of them haven't been broken. And so what we're witnessing now, which has come to the public's view, you know, are, are manifestations of 401 years ago.
1: For you, this is a form of healing, national reconciliation. That's what you have in mind?
2: Well, yeah, and transformation. It's a form of, first of all, truth-telling. People don't know. Schools haven't taught the history of slavery right? They haven't taught how it's manifested today. You have to tell the truth. You have to have a historical context so you develop a position where people can come together and try to heal because people are angry at each other. They, They think that Black people are taking their jobs, for example. They don't understand that Black people aren't taking their jobs, that it's been policies that have discriminated against Black people, which keeps us out of the job market and at lower wages. And so it's developing a public record And then you move toward a process, and this is a process that many countries, again, have used to healing. Once the victims and people come forward all around the country and say, this is how it's impacted me today, or this is how it's impacted my family. Then you move to looking at what the policies are, such as the housing segregation policies or or Jim Crow, which still exists in a new way, mass incarceration. You deconstruct those policies and you transform this country by bringing forth programs, policies, and a culture that has justice and repairing the damage as core. And it could be reparations. And so you have to uh, have that basis and that foundation to get to transformation. And let me just say, we didn't call it reconciliation. And I worked on this for over three years with academics, activists, and, and political scientists and what have you, because there's really nothing in America to reconcile when it comes to, for instance, the genocide of Native Americans, which is part of this, or the enslavement of African-Americans. So we decided to, it would be a much better fit for this context in America to use transformation instead of reconciliation.
0: Andrew? Congresswoman, this is Andrew. Along those lines, policy change has got to be it, right? I mean, I, I was talking to my good friend, Wes Moore, the other day, who's the CEO of the Robin Hood Foundation, a foundation that fights poverty. He has a new book out called Five Days, The Fiery Reckoning of American City about uh, the aftermath of the Freddie Gray murder in Baltimore. And one of the things he pointed out, which is so stark in this book, is that the population of West Baltimore, which is African American, the life expectancy there is 65 years old, which is the same as the life expectancy of people in North Korea. So when we're talking about systemic racism, we're talking about health, we're talking about redlining, we're talking about systemic and systematic keeping people down. And and so there's a lot of policy that we need to change here. So how how do we do this in a systematic way to, to change all of this?
2: Yeah, well, that, that's the point. It has to lead to transformation, which means policy changes. Now, don't get me wrong. We're working on that. The Black Caucus has since our existence in Congress <laughs> for almost 50 years, this has been our agenda. When you look at, for instance, uh, Black maternal mortality rates, we had to form recently a Black Women Maternal Healthcare Caucus. And the United Nations came out with a report that the United States in the last 25 years is the first country that has gone back in terms of infant mortality and Black mother mortality uh, at childbirth. So we've gone backwards on every front. So yes, we have to get rid of those policies that have, have allowed for the disproportion of deaths and the age gap as it relates to deaths in the Black community. But uh, this requires us to really get rid of those policies of discrimination and systemic racism. A lot of people don't even understand what systemic racism is. When you look at, for example, mass incarceration, When you look at the marijuana uh, beefs and how marijuana laws have destroyed the lives of African Americans for petty misdemeanors, for the use or sale of marijuana. I mean, there's so many policies in this country that are inherently racist until we've got to get rid of those policies and transform this country with new policies. So that's exactly what this Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation Commission intends to do.
0: Are you concerned that, you know, we're in a moment right now, but is it going to really transform into a movement that is sustainable?
2: Well, it better because uh, this country can't sustain itself the way it is structured now. And the movement, I think what you're seeing is, thank goodness for the movement and for these young people. But you see at the local level, for example, efforts to, however you want to call it, divest, defund reprioritize funding for police departments. I see truth and transformation commissions like cropping up now since I introduced this resolution at the local level. And so, yeah, I think it's going to be sustained. It may not be sustained just constantly in the streets, but I believe that these young people have learned what their power means and are translating it into political power and will vote. And we'll have elected officials who will be accountable for these policy changes.
1: Now, uh, Congresswoman, you know some people. You look at the situation in America with the COVID nineteen pandemic, the economic crisis that's triggered, now the strife that's come out of systemic racism and police brutality. It's a very fragile moment right now that we're in, and. It could be a moment of national awakening. It could be a moment of further strife and instability. How are you looking at that?
2: Well, uh, in both ways. You're seeing now people getting their guns out, pointing them at African-Americans. You hear rumors of the white Aryan nation and the white supremacists and the Klan, you know, all of the right-wing groups. Uh, Unfortunately, the Boogaloo Boys if you know who they are, they've surfaced yeah. um, and, you know, killed a young man who was a uh, Federal Protective Service right. contracted guard at my federal building where I park. So you see these right wingers cropping up everywhere. And yeah, they are being emboldened by the White House and by Donald Trump and his agenda. Remember, he came into office with a white supremacist agenda, Steve Bannon, Gorka, Steve Miller, all of them. I mean, this is like, who they are. So they're giving rise and giving the oxygen for these groups to, to surface. And so I'm very concerned about how they're just getting away with literally murder and how, uh, you know, we have to be very vigilant. But I think that we're on the right side of history. And I see more uh, people from all backgrounds coming together on the right side.
1: You joined just recently with Karen Bass in the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act that contains some really very sensible sort of measures around lowering criminal intent standards, limiting qualified immunity, authorizing DOJ to investigate departments of police that have patterns of discrimination. Tell us a bit about the value of that and the support that that is attracting.
2: Sure. Thanks a million, Steve, for raising that because this bill Uh, the provisions are nothing new. I mean, when you look at the bill, you can go way back to the Black Caucus with Congressman Metcalf. (laughs) I mean, you know, you go back to the 70s and 80s with some of these provisions. And so the unfortunate murders of Mr. Floyd and others uh, have given rise to, I think, the street heat that would allow us to put forth this legislation that allowed it to pass the House. But it also for instance, you know, the military equipment, these weapons of war that are transferred to police departments, this bill eliminates that. The no-knock warrants uh, for drug searches, we prohibit that. You know, we developed a, a national database of police actions that's accessible to all because a lot of these police officers have records that would would show you that they could possibly be a police officer who who could conduct him or herself in a way that's inappropriate, leading to violence and and death. So we have to have a database. And of course, qualified immunity. We end that in our bill because uh, that law, that doctrine prevents law enforcement from being held legally accountable, even when they break the law. And no one should be above the law. And police officers are, as long as you have qualified immunity. And so many of these provisions, again, go way back uh, to the day. And so we finally got it passed. I mean, can you imagine we haven't been able to prohibit uh, neck holes and choke holes? Uh, That has never been seen as a civil rights violation. Uh, And so this bill is comprehensive. It's a great first start. We have a lot more to do, but I wish that uh, Senator McConnell would get with the program and Tim Scott and, and stop playing around with people's lives and with restructuring these police departments because their bill is just about, you know, a statement, a message, you know, saying, well, maybe, or, you know, a police officer can get off the hook if he thinks his or her life is in jeopardy. Well, that's part of the rationale that is used in court cases as it relates to police murder. So it, we've got a long way to to go, but I really am proud of Democrats and the three Republicans who voted for it.
0: Congresswoman, can I ask you: Is there a component in any of this legislation that is that calls for a greater education of police? For instance, you know, do any of these police know the history of our country about Middle Passage and, and things like this?
2: You know, uh, there's provisions I believe for more um, diversity training and you know uh, community policing and how you relate to people from a public safety point of view, but I don't believe we have that type of provision in, but I think that's a very good idea. Uh, Someone actually mentioned having uh, police officers go to the Holocaust Museum, you know, and and be trained there. And so uh, I think that's a really good suggestion and I'm going to see if we get to conference, if we ever do to maybe include some kind of a provision like that.
0: That's great. I feel like there's a lot of, police that, you know, maybe didn't go to college, maybe haven't had exposure to, you know, what's going on historically in America, don't understand all the conditions that are present in our society and don't have a way of processing.
2: They don't, but most, most Americans don't. That's why this commission is so important. Yeah. I am telling you, and I come from a very progressive area. My, my district Unfortunately, as a result of gentrification, now my Black population is probably only 17 or 18%. So I don't have a majority African-American district, but it's a progressive district. And progressives don't even know this history or don't connect it. And so right. it's, it's a real shame and disgrace. And it's a moral stain on this country that we've never been truthful with the public and help educate and, and help people become aware of what has taken place and what is taking place. So that's exactly the point of the commission.
1: Well, I wish you the best of luck with both of these initiatives. This is not a short-term strategy I'm sure that you're pursuing on this. Just building the idea and socializing it and and looking forward, I'm sure it can. it's going to continue to have legs as we look forward into the
2: Thank you, Stephen. Yeah, we're building co-sponsorships. We have about 135 co-sponsors now, which was really phenomenal just in the first month to get to 135. I've talked with a Speaker Pelosi and Brian yes. Stevenson from the Lynching Museum in, in Alabama is helping us out, right. which is phenomenal because his his museum, his Peace and Justice Museum and Lynching Museum are, make the point visually. And, and I encourage people to go there to really get it. And so I, I think we're going to have successful resolution passed, and then we do the legislation next year, and um, we'll keep going. This is a marathon. You know, the fight for racial justice and equity has different chapters in it. Well, this is another chapter, so we know it's not going to be overnight, but um, I do think that this is a major leap in the right direction, and we're going to get this done.
1: Thank you. Andrew? Congressman, we want
0: to change directions a little bit and ask you more specifically about COVID. The factors that are affecting black people in America when it comes to COVID have just proven to be devastating. In your view, what's gonna be required for successful contact tracing and successful introduction of vaccines? And do you think that we're on the cusp of anything anytime soon?
2: I don't think anytime soon. You know, listening to Dr. Fauci and Dr. Redfield, the head of the CDC, yeah, I'm I'm not sure it's, it's soon. But I do know that what we're insisting on with the vaccine, once it's developed, that it's equitably distributed and it's accessible and it doesn't cost money for everyone to be able to receive the vaccine. I mean, there's an equity issue in the vaccine uh, once it's developed. But I think, you know, we have to, as it relates to contact tracing, first of all, the African-American community, the government is suspect. And so if the government tells us one thing, we're going to think something else. I mean, we have this issue with the census, right. with vaccines, within the Tuskegee experiment, and all of the historical systemic racist attitudes, policies, and behaviors toward African-Americans quite naturally force all of us to be very leery <laughs> of what the federal government is telling us.
1: So the approach then needs to be very community-based? Is that your your argument?
2: Yeah. So you start there. Yeah, my argument is that you have to resource those community health centers, those nonprofits that have emerged from the community. You make sure they get the proper training if they aren't already trained. Many already are. And then you hire, for example, formerly incarcerated individuals. You hire former gang members. You hire trusted messengers in those communities. And you pay them. You train them. You have them do the contact tracing, because believe you me, we trust them, okay? They know, they know the community. Don't be bringing in AmeriCorps students who are great, you know, but are primarily white young people who want to do good, but they're not going to be received well in this, such a sensitive kind of project and, and job.
0: Well, well it's, really, it's really a reimagining of national service, what you're talking about.
2: Yeah, you have to reimagine national service and you can't do it the old way. You have to do it from the ground up and you have to do it uh, where these disparities are the greatest. You have to have people who are culturally relevant, appropriate, understand the community and who are trusted by the community. Because there are certain people I would not believe who deliver messages as it relates to contact tracing. I'm saying, tell that person, don't tell me anything, you know, because they're suspect. So if I don't believe them, (laughs) you know, (laughs) Uh, you know, uh, others won't believe them. So it's important that we do that. And I think if we do that, and we got the language in the bill, the HEROES bill, I mean, CDC and what these Republicans are doing is deadly. Because we put specific language on how to do this in black and brown communities that are most impacted. For CDC to gather the data based on race and ethnicity, which they had 21 days to give us the first report. And what they did was give us a patched up, botched up, Linked report to states with bogus data in it. I mean, it was the Dr. Redfield actually apologized in the Appropriations Committee for that. And so you see how they just, in many ways, I hate to say diss black and brown communities, but they just put us on the back burner.
1: Well, you were very successful, were you not, in that hearing, as an outgrowth of that hearing, end of May, early June, you were very successful at getting the commitment from the federal government to start tracking COVID-19 testing data according to race and ethnicity, age and sex. I think that was a breakthrough.
2: Yeah, it was, but have they done it yet? Right,
1: right. Well, <laughs> they... <laughs>
2: they've got the, their feet to the fire now. But every day it's a new priority. So they're making slow progress. But they should have done this overnight. In the Affordable Care Act, we required in 2010 or whenever we passed it that the data, health data, be collected based on race, ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic background. We required that in the Affordable Care Act. Do you think they've done that yet? No. This is 2020. So, again, systemic racism. <laughs> you see how this plays out you can pass a law, you require them, and then they just say, oh, well, you know, that's those people. We'll get to it later. And that's what they've done.
0: So what's the next thing that has to happen, Congresswoman, with COVID? What, what is the most immediate thing that Congress needs to do? What is the most immediate thing that this administration in its waning months needs to do to, to help people out?
2: Most immediate thing is public health education and instruct people to wear masks, social distancing, and to do the right thing based on the health protocols and to stop these opening of states. Like here in California, we've had to shut down again. Not everything, but the economic impact is real. And so at the same time that we go back to shutting down to reduce the spread of the virus and and the deaths, we need to also pass the legislation in the uh, Senate, in the HEROES Act, That would provide an extension of unemployment, you know, the 600 a month. We need a paycheck guarantee, a couple of thousand a month until the end of the pandemic. People have lost their jobs through no fault of their own. We need to make sure that uh, the resources are there for small and African-American-owned and minority-owned businesses so that they can survive. So you have to do both. You have to require the health protocols be adhered to, but you have to also require the Republicans to help these people through this economic tragedy. And, and they're not doing that. And so that's what you have to do until we right. do that. Right. I'm, I'm terrified of what um, is taking place now. And you see where you see where the rates are going higher, where the states opened up like no big deal. I mean, it's like crazy.
1: Yeah, I wanted to follow up on Andrew with a question about what has happened in the last week. I mean, we're just under 130,000 deaths right now, 2.7 million cases. Dr. Redfield says the true case count is 10 times that number. We have Tony Fauci and Ann Shookett publicly coming out and saying there are wildfires all over this country, in the South and the West in particular, and they're out of control, and that we could hit 100,000 cases. Aren't you? just terrified by what's going on?
2: That's what I said. I'm terrified. And let me tell you, not being political, but being political. November can't come fast enough because this man in the White House has literally set this country on a course that was very deadly. And it's it's really tragic. And so, yeah, I'm worried. And yeah, if we don't do something at the local and state levels and, and forget what Donald Trump is saying, I mean, it's amazing how people show up for rallies. <laughs> well, I'm glad not as many showed up in Oklahoma as they expected, but it's crazy how people just do what he says do. <laughs> and, it, and in many respects, what he says do or not do is, is tragic, is deadly, and it's, it's causing more death and destruction in people's lives. So yeah, we've got to get on course politically.
0: Congresswoman, can I ask you about something that's you know close to home with you? We've heard in recent days a lot about San Quentin. And COVID, what's going on there, and what needs to happen?
2: I tell you one thing: we've been fighting to get funding, and we did put a little bit in for federal prisons to provide for testing for all inmates, and it's very and, and early release of those nonviolent, uh, older, you know, inmates who are no threat to society. Some have been released, but uh, these are like breeding grounds for the virus. It's not San Quentin and other prisons like I say, I don't have the most current information on San Quentin, but I do know that uh, inmates are being infected and dying in huge numbers. And the conditions of a prison warrant that. I mean, those are the worst conditions. And so you've got to figure out a way to make sure that every inmate gets tested. That's the first thing. And then you go through the isolation, you know, the contact tracing, everything that we do are supposed to be doing from a public health perspective on the outside, you should do on the inside, but also you have that additional uh, crowning situation that you've got to deal with.
1: Congresswoman, elected black women leaders have really played a profoundly important role recently in the response to the killing of George Floyd. You and other fellow women members of the Black Caucus, Congressional Black Caucus, have been at the forefront of this response. And the same is true for so many mayors who've come forward on the national stage. Lori Lightfoot from Chicago, London Breed from San Francisco, Keisha Lance Bottoms from Atlanta, Muriel Bowser here in DC, Libby Schaff in Oakland. Is this a historic moment for elected black women leaders?
2: Uh, yes, it is. And it's finally a moment where the country and the world sees who we really are. <laughs> you know,
0: It's about time.
2: <laughs> it's tragic that uh, we, we've been here in this country 401 years, right? And we've been doing the leading the liberation movements, the freedom movements, the Underground Railroad, Harriet Tubman. You look at Ida B. Wells, you look at all of the black women who have held this country up and held our families together and our communities together. Rosa Parks, Dorothy Height, uh, Shirley Chisholm, for, I don't know how she did that. I, I, she was my mentor, and she was the only black woman in Congress, the first one. She had to deal with the power structure, white men. She had to deal with African-American men. She had to deal with so much racism and sexism. you know. But black women have always risen to the occasion. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad you guys are now seeing this. And we should be in the White House. We should, have, we should be president and vice president, if you ask me.
0: Well, I'm all for it.
1: <laughs> Before we run out of time, I, w- I want to ask you about AIDS 2020, the virtual conference. You've been so instrumental in getting Congress to pass support for the conference, which we're all very grateful for that. You were very instrumental in getting a first time ever that two cities, Oakland and San Francisco, joined together. Tell us, uh, what are your expectations and how are you going to contribute?
2: Boy, this is bittersweet. I tell you, it is just like, because of COVID, of course, it's got to be all virtual. And I actually did the legislation to lift the travel ban so that we (laughs) can have international internet conferences back in the U.S. So we did the first one in D.C. And I went back and I told the IAS, look, (laughs) you better do it in my district next time. And so we decided, okay, we do Oakland and San Francisco because it really is in a lot of ways, a tale of two cities on the HIV AIDS front. And so we were gonna highlight the wonderful um, advances uh, out of San Francisco and the partnerships that we have in San Francisco and the political leadership that has allowed the pandemic in San Francisco to uh, be in many ways under control But yet in Oakland, you have the African-American community, especially still the rates are, are twice what they are anywhere else and comparable to rates in the South of the United States. And so we wanted to be able to shine some light on best practices in Oakland and in San Francisco, what our wonderful community activists and organizations are doing in both cities, what the research is, but also learn from people abroad. I mean, you know, I've been to Africa many times and I've seen so much progress in sub-Saharan Africa since I started going there looking at the whole HIV AIDS pandemic in 98. And believe you me, and, and Thailand and other countries, I see some practices that we can adopt here that would help move us along. And so we were really so looking forward to this. And I tell you, this is something. So we're making the best out of it. But the silver lining is that we're connecting, I think, with more people in the world that never would have been able to travel. Right. And so, like, I've done a million um, Zoom interviews. I've gotten two today. Uh, Speaker Pelosi has done many. We've done interviews together. And so I just think we're connecting the world through technology in a way that would not have happened had we had the physical conferences in both places. But I wanted to see everybody. I wanted to be with everyone. And we had many events planned. And Just, it it was going to be wonderful and boom, COVID. (laughs) So we're making the best out of it.
1: Yes. Well, we're going to be very busy next week as part of that. And uh, we've had this Friends of the uh, Age 2020 group together based at CSIS now for over a year. And you kindly contributed to one of our podcasts earlier, a year ago, that Andrew did with you. Yeah, we talked over near your office uh, on Capitol Hill.
2: Gosh, that seems like a hundred years ago. (laughs) It (laughs) sure
0: does. (laughs)
2: Yeah. But no, you all have really helped so much in pushing this forward. And I want to thank both of you for that because we couldn't have done it without you. Because, you know, you have to have a heck of a lot of uh, support to be able to get the funding done and to get this done the right way. And so the HIV AIDS caucus is bipartisan, bicameral. You know, I can't thank you all enough for what you've done. Uh, And check this, we have appropriations, state foreign op and all the appropriations bills next week. So I would have been stuck in D.C. anyway. I'd have to do virtual. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, I don't know. For me, personally, the virtual conference is going to be the better option
1: because I would have been stuck on the hill. (laughs) (laughs) Well, all's well that ends well. That's good. Yeah. Congresswoman, uh, we like to end our, our conversations with our guests by asking them to tell us what gives them the greatest strength and hope In the middle of this period of multiple crises and uncertainty.
2: Well, of course, my grandchildren, I have five grandchildren. They're constantly on the case with me
1: and Mm -hmm. they
2: they see through a lot and they're giving me direction and the whole bit. And so I love that. And I love the young people in the street who say we are not going back to what was normal. (laughs) That old normal is done. Yeah, And I am so excited about that, because that old normal I grew up under, I've lived under. And I don't want to go back to that old normal. And so it's exciting once we get past this, just making sure people don't die and don't get so sick until we can't move out of it for years. You know, once we get out of this, I'm excited for what the future holds.
0: Congresswoman, this is great words to live by and to remember. Um, we thank you so much for your time today and all of your insight
2: good talking with you and thank you again and call anytime. I'd love to talk.
1: Thank you so much.